Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the John Sams Homestead, an historic property on North Merritt Island. The original cabin uh, built in 1875 was actually three rooms. It's now one room since it's our museum. We needed to open it up for space purposes. But it's about uh, 800 square feet. We'll remember the sugarcane industry in Felsmere and discuss the Veterans History Project. It was just coming to recognize how many World War II veterans we have, how many we're losing every day, and how important their stories are. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. As we walk along here, you can see this is the entrance to our hiking trail, which goes on for seven miles. If you want, you could just spend all day hiking or running through here. They're really, really beautiful trails through a, a nice hammock environment and it goes all the way up to that salt marsh where we found the Ice Age fossils. And we do do regular guided hikes where we talk about the plants that pioneers used and the Native Americans used. And as we walk along here, uh, I, you can see uh, different uh, footprints left by different uh, critters here. Or maybe a staff member with a special <laughs> stamping tool. <laughs> Little design. Katrina Morell is taking us on a tour of the outdoor exhibits located at the John H. Sams Homestead on North Merritt Island. So this is the area the kids really like. And with our school programs, we take them in here and they get to actually dig for fossils and um, look at these things. But we've got a life-size uh, giant ground sloth who appears to be eating the leaves off of the tree. We've also got a life-size glyptodont. This is in our Ice Age area and you go underneath an archway that's carved out like a mastodon and you can see what a excavation unit would have looked like and read about these different Ice Age giants that used to live here. On February 9th and 10th, the Sam's House Historic Site and St. Luke's Episcopal Church will present the second annual Pioneer Day celebration with craft vendors, pioneer demonstrations, live music, a fish fry, and much more. The Sam's House and St. Luke's Episcopal Church are both located on North Merritt Island in Brevard County. Katrina Morell is Education Coordinator with the Brevard County Environmentally Endangered Lands Program. She explains that Confederate Army veteran John Sams moved his family from South Carolina to Florida in 1875. After the Civil War, of course, lifestyles changed, and they continued trying to make a go of it for about 10 years, and it just wasn't working. So they decided to take advantage of the Homestead Act of 1862 and come make a new life in Florida. So they traveled by steamer, took them about six days, and they actually originally landed in O'Galley, which is where they built the cabin that we have here in 1875. The Sams family built their cabin in O'Galley, which is in South Brevard County. Their farming efforts were unsuccessful, so the family decided to relocate to Merritt Island in North Brevard County. 
As Katrina Morell explains, they brought their cabin with them. I think it was just a matter of bad timing. When they were in Ogali, they tried to plant orange trees, which was, of course, the thing to do. And the orange trees failed to bear fruit. There were also lots of storms going on. We know uh, we have Maddie's diary, who was John Sam's daughter. She was eight years old at the time that they left South Carolina and came to Florida. And she documents being trapped for days, living on sprouted beans with all these storms going on, taking in other families whose houses had fallen down. It just wasn't working for them. And actually, his brother lived up here in North Merritt Island already. And they had been coming here every winter to a sugarcane plantation. So they would spend every winter up here grinding sugarcane. And they decided to go ahead and move in 1878 and make this their permanent home. So they took the cabin and turned it essentially into a, a flats boat and pulled it up the Indian River Lagoon, put it together in the location where it stands right now in 1878. The move to Merritt Island was a good choice for the Sams family. Although four adults and six children lived in the 800-square-foot cabin for 10 more years, during this period, John Sams became a successful farmer and community leader. In addition to growing citrus, pineapple, and other crops, Sams served as superintendent of schools from 1880 to 1920 and helped to found St. Luke's Episcopal Church. Tom McFarland is vice president of the Pine Island Preservation Society and a longtime member of St. Luke's. In 1878, when John Sams had first moved here with the, with the little cabin, uh, uh, John Freeman Young, the second bishop of Florida, uh, visited this area, knew that there were uh, Episcopalians in the area from South Carolina, interested in uh, having a church nearby, and he uh, met with uh, uh, the uh, Sam's family and several other families here, and they uh, they decided they would form a mission in 1879. They did form a mission here, so so they were they prospered here. Actually, did quite well. They tried various crops. They had pineapples for a while, and they had uh, the citrus groves. The uh, sugar was quite pro- a profitable crop. And uh, it seemed to sustain them pretty well, I think, even when the weather turned against them, they still had the, the sugar to rely on as a cash crop. So, uh, so they did, did well, even though it was a, it was a, they were true pioneer settlers. They, uh, they were accustomed to uh, wealth and prominence in a community, and it, moving to the wilderness of Florida was was uh, trying for them, and there are stories of, of uh, uh, tragedy and, and uh, difficulties that they sustained here. Eventually, John Sams constructed a house more consistent with his growing stature in the community. In 1888, he built a two-story home adjacent to the family cabin. Katrina Morell. The original cabin uh, built in 1875 was actually three rooms. It's now one room since it's our museum. We needed to open it up for space purposes. But it's about uh, 800 square feet. And it was three rooms, one small little living room, and then a bedroom on either end. And there were 10 people living in there in 1880. So we know uh, John Sams and his wife had a bedroom on one end with all the little small children. The older children shared a bedroom on the other end with his sister, who was called Sister. And then his older brother also lived with them, and he was upstairs in like a little loft. 
And of course, there was no bathroom and no kitchen, uh, typical of the time. There was an outhouse and then a separate kitchen building that at some point burnt down because we have not located that. And then they were able to build this house we're in in 1888, which is 1,200 square feet, so much bigger, showing their stature in the community going up. Uh, and part of that was that he was also the first superintendent of the public school system. So in addition to growing the oranges, he had a very important duty traveling all around the county, helping the schools get going. But this house, when it was built, also did not have a kitchen or a bathroom at the time. Those were added later. As John Sams worked to build the community infrastructure of North Merritt Island, more pioneer settlers were attracted to the area. Tom McFarlane. He seemed to be very uh, interested in the development of the whole area, schools, churches, roads, uh, building a real community in in the area. He had a packing house and uh, uh, shipped his citrus from a dock here. Uh, you probably heard the name E.P. Porsche that lived down the road from him uh, until about 1905 or six and moved into Coco, but uh, uh, Porsche was also friends, and the, the LaRoche family uh, lived nearby. Uh, Katrina mentioned his, uh, his brother, Michael Seabrook. There were Whaley's and Jenkins. All of those families came from that uh, Sea Island area just outside of Charleston, and so they, they built the community here uh, at, at a time in the 1880s when uh, the area was opening up, and there were lots of of uh, northerners coming in and people from England settling this little uh, little community of uh, southerners who had fought during the Civil War as uh, confederates came to this area and and seemed to have been pretty homogeneous as a as a group. The Sams family lived on the property until nineteen ninety five when governmental agencies acquired the property the following year, a series of archaeological excavations were conducted that revealed that prehistoric people had lived on that location thousands of years before the Sams family arrived. Large prehistoric animal remains were also discovered. Katrina Morell. In 1996, this property was purchased by St. John's River Water Management District and the Brevard County Environment Endangered Lands Program. And we made a commitment to really survey the area once we discovered that these old homes were on the property. So the Indian River Anthropological Society took over for seven years. They did uh, shovel tests around the entire site and then excavated specific areas and they found amazing things. Where uh, the original Sam's Creek was, we found a whole repository of Ice Age fossils. We found giant mastodon jawbones and giant sloth knuckles, you know, old alligator scoots and um, parts of saber-tooth cats, all kinds of amazing things. And then they also discovered there's a Native American burial mound right here on the property. And they, of course, they didn't dig into that. We don't do that now, but they did do radar over it and found some anomalies inside. They found the old hearths where the uh, Native Americans would have been traveling through and catching game and then cooking it over the fire to make into a kind of jerky and then traveling on. So we believe that there was a group um, pre-Ais that was coming here every season for over 800 years 
just for hunting and fishing, taking advantage of the resources that were around. And then, of course, we have the pioneers that were coming through and the descendants of the Sams family lived here all the way until 1996. Today, the John H. Sams Homestead serves multiple purposes with historic structures, an indoor-outdoor museum, nature trails, and more. We've got uh, a thousand acres of land that goes all the way. The Sams House Historical Complex is at the southern tip, and then it uh, goes all the way up to border with the Merritt Island Wildlife Refuge. So if you're into nature, you can go hiking for seven miles. You can go kayaking out into the lagoon through uh, nice canals frequented by manatees. There's uh, availability to bring your horse and go horseback riding. And then here at the Sam's house, we have the cabin, which has been converted into a museum. We also have the paved trail that has exhibits on it that cover each of those time periods, the Ice Age, the Native Americans, and the Pioneers. And we're open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 9 to 5. And on each of those days, we offer a variety of public programming. We host school groups. We do lectures and presentations. We also have a history garden. We give tours through, guided hikes. We try to change it every month so that there's always new programs, something fresh and new to come and see. Inside the Sam's Family Cabin, exhibits demonstrate pioneer life on the property, including this interactive display. We had our first experience of a storm. My father had planned to go to Titusville that night and get some groceries and come back next morning. Luckily, he decided to wait. About 10 p.m., the wind began to blow. Hotter and hotter, raining hard too. Then the second night at dawn, there was a lull. Presently, they heard a scream for help and remembered a young woman and a three-year-old child was staying in a house on Rocky Point, nearly a mile away, while her husband and brother had gone on down the river. My father grabbed his coat and went. Later, we saw them coming. He carried the little girl, the mother struggling alongside. Just as they reached our house, the storm broke loose again and raged into the night. I don't think those two would have pulled through the second blow. The shed they had been under was wrecked. We have uh, Maddie's diary, Martha Sands LaRoche's diary, who was eight when they left South Carolina. And we've got little snippets that you can hear of what her life was like as they came to Florida. It would have been very shocking for a little girl, you know, living a privileged plantation life and then coming here and living on sprouted beans and shoved together with all her brothers and sisters in this little cabin in a new strange place with fleas and mosquitoes and all those terrors. And then we've got a little model of what the house would have looked like in 1890, the whole plantation where everything was covered with orange trees as far as the eye could see. And at that point they had built the larger home on property and there's the packing house. And actually, there's a little model boat on here. John Sam's got the very first powered boat in Florida. It was made for him. It was called a naphtha boat. Other exhibits look at the Ice Age, Native American culture, prehistoric Florida animals, and more. The exhibits continue on a roughly circular trail behind the cabin, taking the visitor through time from the Ice Age to the present. And we're walking up now on what appears to be uh, looking at the Native American life here. Yeah, you come into our little Native American area and there's a partial replica of a Native American hut. 
So you can see what their house was like and compared with the Pioneer homes. And then you go in and there's a replica drying rack with all kinds of lovely skinned animals cooking on the top. So they would have uh, cooked the animals, of course, and then shredded them you know, into jerky to carry with them onto their next location since they were nomadically moving through here. And you can read about the different lifestyle on the signs as you go around. And the trail continues through time up into uh, the pioneer days here. Yes, and you can meet John Sams himself. We've got a life-size cutout of him. And we've got information on the orange groves and transportation with the importance of the railroad at the time. There's also a honeybee box here, a replica one, since they would have had honey uh, hives interspersed throughout the orange groves and sold the honey. We also have pineapples and sugar cane. And we've got a project right now where we're working on replicating a bit of an orange grove in this area here. So this area will be changing as we move forward, kind of recreating that pioneer homestead. On February 9th and 10th, the Sam's House and St. Luke's Episcopal Church will present their second annual Pioneer Day celebration with craft vendors, pioneer demonstrations, live music, a fish fry, and much more. The Sam's House and St. Luke's Episcopal Church are both located on North Merritt Island in Brevard County. And then just after the Pioneer area, we have our History Garden. This was a grant from Keep Brevard Beautiful. And we've got two sides. One side is all plants that would have been used by the Pioneers. And then another side is plants that would have been used by the Native Americans. This and is course, Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the, the Florida uh, Historical Society. Here. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch original video, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. The town of Fellsmere in Indian River County used to be home to a commercial sugarcane operation. Janie Gould talks with Joel Tyson, a former mayor of Fellsmere. During the depths of the Great Depression, a brave soul by the name of Frank Heiser overcame all odds, from drainage problems to freezes and hurricanes, and established Fellsmere as a center for commercial sugarcane production. He planted sugarcane, built a refinery, and marketed the finished product as Florida Crystals. Heiser, who died in 1961, is credited with keeping Fellsmere afloat during tough economic times. He thought that sugar cane would do well here. How come? I don't know what inspired him, but he talked some people into letting him put a, an experimental patch of sugar cane in, and it did do well. Joel Tyson is a former mayor of Fellsmere. His ties to the town go back to the 1940s. Eventually, they put in 17,000 acres of sugar cane. I thought that sugar cane needed to have soil with muck in it, like the soil around the lake. Well, it does. Around that's, lake what, that's what that is out there. Well, you're right on the banks of the St. John's River. They started the St. John's River. That's the muck land out there is unbelievable. Still? Yeah. It's a sod farm now. At first, they were not refining the sugar. They would squeeze the cane 
and cook the juice, you know, uh, make it into a, kind of a slurry or something, and then they would ship it up, I think, to Louisiana, and that's where they refined it. Well, they decided that they needed to do the whole thing right out here. You know what the process entails, yep. from growing sugarcane to processing. What happened? First of all, when you get ready to harvest sugarcane, you have to burn the fields to get rid of all the extra foliage and so forth that's out there. So that people can come in and cut it? Exactly right. And they had the cane cutters. They were from down the islands. They would go in and cut the cane and load it onto wagons. They had a railroad track out there and these uh, little engines that pull the stuff. They would haul the sugar into the mill and then it would go through a process of squeezing the sugar to get the juice out of it. Then they would capture that and then they had to cook that juice. It would make like a syrup. Then they had these great big centrifugal vats that they would put that in and they would spin it and they would spin off the molasses and the more you would spin that you'd have brown sugar and if you keep spinning it long enough it would spin all of that molasses off of it and you'd have pure crystal sugar once they got the crystallizing and so forth that process then they could do the whole thing that went from the field to the juice to the cooking and uh, crystallized it and bagged it of course, the railroad went out there, and they loaded up into railroad cars and ship it out to market. It's called Florida Crystals. You can still buy sugar with that logo, that brand name on it. I don't know if somebody bought that. I guess that was Pelsmere's largest employer. During the Depression, it was probably one of the largest employers anywhere in the country. People would ride the rails, you know, the hobos and so forth. There were all kinds of people that would come into Felsmere looking for jobs. Well, anybody that had a job out there would kill to keep the job. They worked all during the Depression, never slowed down. Is that right? It was phenomenal because there was no jobs to be had anywhere in the United States. And they were coming to Felsmere? They were coming to Felsmere from all over the country because they heard that there was a sugar mill out here that they might be able to get a job. Did you ever taste cane right from the field? We would chew it as a kid. It grows in joints, you know, and you take those joints and peel the outer bark off of it. It's real fibery. You ever chewed on a piece of sugar cane? No, I never have. Well, it's real juicy. I mean, you would cut it into the little cubes and chew it. In the 1940s, Frank Heiser and his partner sold the company. Sugarcane production in Felsmere ceased in the 1960s. Joel Tyson is retired from the military. He also worked 19 years as an overseas consultant. Jamie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Bill Dudley reports on a project to record and preserve the stories of veterans on a national and state level. I thought to myself, well, we're going to collect a lot of stories. And and, uh, after maybe 500 or 600 or 2,000 stories, they might start all sounding the same. And sure enough, they don't. Peter Bartis is Senior Program Officer for the Veterans History Project at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. I was uh, taken by the extraordinary individuality of each story. There are some things in common, but every soldier, every sailor, every woman and man that participates in this project has a very unique story to tell, and one that I think really does add something to the national memory as they're preserved here at the Library of Congress. It began in 2000 with a bill sponsored by Wisconsin Congressman Ronald Kind and voted on unanimously by Congress, creating a project to be directed by the library's American Folklife Center. We knew we had an awesome challenge to collect the stories of 19 million veterans, And we knew that Congress also had in mind not only that we create a collection, but that we uh, create a public awareness of the important contributions that veterans have made to our nation. 
and also that we involve the American public. With funding from Congress and corporate support from the AARP, they formed a volunteer corps of individuals and invited organizations to partner with the Folklife Center to promote the project. It seemed like a good thing to do, an interesting thing to do. I know my dad was a veteran of World War II, so I had some interest in finding out what the heck went on. It was just coming to recognize how many World War II veterans we have, how many we're losing every day, and how important their stories are to really get a good picture of what American history is all about. Pat Errett and Doreen Kordak are members of the Coast Guard Auxiliary on Florida's West Coast. They're part of a team that began interviewing vets. Both were surprised by the response to their efforts. One gentleman came to the event with a rolling suitcase with all his memorabilia, and his comment was very poignant. He he said, I, I want someone to take custody of this because when I pass on, I don't want my children to throw it out. We had other people that were very choked up to think that someone wanted to listen to their stories, that they were important enough to talk about. What I found interesting, too, were, were the children of some of these men who came through, and, and they, they said, please sit down with him. Let him give you his story because... It's real important to us that we know and that it be recorded somewhere. Although the project encompasses soldiers and their families from World War I to the present day, volunteers are concentrating on collecting memories of older people because it's estimated that 1,700 American War veterans die each day. I was a Navy Corpsman attached to the Assault Combat Team 27 of the 5th Marine Division landing a few minutes after HR 0900 on Red Beach 2, Florida veteran Kenneth Bell tells of landing on Iwo Jima in 1945. Bell says he felt proud to be a part of the project. I think it needed to be done. We owed it to a lot of people to honor those who have contributed so much to our nation's freedom. The stories need to be told so that younger generations can build upon the courage and the sacrifice and the valor that took place in those days. From the ordinary to the extraordinary, thousands of American war stories like Bell's are now available on the Library of Congress website, www.loc.gov vets. Portions of many are in audio form, like the narrative of Army 2nd Lieutenant Walter Morris, part of the 1st All-Black Parachute Infantry Battalion. We had a, a flying group of men, and, and they, they were all focused on the same thing, proving not only to themselves, but to the world, that colored troops were no different than white troops. If you had it, you had it, whether you were black, white, blue, or green. You know. If there's one thing that all of us here on this staff have witnessed is that it does celebrate the human spirit. People write and speak about the most awful, horrific experiences, and then we see that they have reclaimed their lives, they've reclaimed their nation and their families, they've gone on and lived good lives. Whether they're Vietnam veterans or whether they're World War II veterans or even World War I veterans that we do, that I myself have interviewed. As an educator myself, if you look in the history books, you don't find a personal way to look at what this war really meant. And these people have an insight that we're going to lose if we don't take the time to stop and get their stories. I think people have responded to this project because it's a time to look back over our, our past history and see just what these extraordinary events in time have done to our culture. 
and how they've created a new history for us. World War II in particular was the most remarkable event and one that has changed the face of, of our nation. It was the start of desegregation. It was the start of a middle class. Uh, it was a way of getting out of depression. And people, while they don't always articulate that, sense that some great things have happened. Veterans, family members, or would-be volunteers are invited to make contact with the American Folklife Center Veterans Project through the website www.loc.gov vets. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.